Hey everyone, how's it going? How has your how how was your New Year celebration? Good. Okay. Hang on a second. Let me hit TikTok here. We are going TikTok live as well as our regular radio show. So let me engage that right now. Give me a second. Oh, hey everybody! Welcome, welcome to everyone on TikTok live. TikTok, TikTok live as well. I want to welcome everybody here. Uh, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. This is the California Haunts Radio Show. We broadcast uh, Sunday through uh, Friday, but Sundays are special days because what we do is I'm going to read something real quick. Hang on a second. This is my first time. Okay. All right. This is my first time broadcasting on TikTok Live. So for everything, was a first time and maybe a last. I don't know. And I don't know how many people are going to be listening. Let, let me check everything here. Okay, so I don't know who's going to be listening or how this is going to work, but uh, I'm over here. Let me do a couple things. I'm over here on my laptop, and hopefully you guys over at TikTok can hear me. The mic's picking me up. I'm over here on my laptop uh, broadcasting to uh, Facebook and YouTube, and hopefully I'm broadcasting to you guys, and you can hear me over at uh, TikTok. I'm hoping. Don't know for sure. But anyway, tonight is our Sunday reading night, and I'm going to introduce myself first. My name is Charlotte. I'm the leader and owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, and that means if you have any kind of paranormal things you think are going on in your house, we can help you out. And it might take us a couple hours to get to you, but we can definitely help you out. Just a word of warning right now from my location, because the phone is way over there, I cannot see any messages that you send. If you're sending any kind of comments through, I cannot see them. So I'll have to check them out, after, hopefully be able to check them out after the fact. So just bear with me. This is the first time I'm doing this. I'm trying to fix it so I can uh, broadcast my radio show not only to Facebook and YouTube, but to TikTok as well. And I don't have an extra computer operating right now, so I have to do it this way with my phone. Today is going to be an interesting day for probably you guys on, on uh, TikTok because you've never seen me do this before. I have um, a book that I read every Sunday, and it's always paranormal-themed. It's always it's either true-life uh, stories, you know, the paranormal, or it might be just a story, you know, that's paranormally-based, you know, just like a, a ghost story, right? Just ghost story. Um, so that's what I do every Sunday for an hour, and uh, it's turned out really good. And this week, you know, as, as you can see by the title of the original video, we're, we're reading a book by Sylvia Schultz, who wrote a book about Christmas legends, like kind of like um, the, the the Yule Cat and different legends and different stories about, you know, wi about winter and, and what, what goes on sometimes in, in those dark days of winter and holidays and all that. So we've been reading that every Sunday. So I want to welcome you guys, whoever happens to come in, to listen to the book. Uh, we've got about two more uh, re readings of the book, and then we'll be switching over to a book about the Salem Witch Trials. All right. So, uh, like I said, today is the test run, and I hope you guys can hear me well enough. I'm really hoping. If not, then I'll have to make adjustments. I apologize. But uh, here we go. Let me get this thing up on my tablet, and uh, we're going to read for an hour. And again, if you're watching from Facebook and you like what you hear, please be sure to like. And uh, if you haven't already, um, hit the follow button. If you're watching from YouTube, down in the bottom right-hand corner on YouTube, there is a little ghost with a uh, magnifying glass. That's our mascot, and if you like what you hear today, uh, please feel free to subscribe if you haven't done that before. There's four, more than 470 videos sitting over there on different topics, 
and I think you'll find something to enjoy. Just like you guys over there on TikTok, same thing. If if you like what you see, you like what you hear today, please hit that little heart because we're we're looking to build our, our our likes up. And please be sure to check out our YouTube page. Just t- type in California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team Media uh, YouTube, and that should get you over there. Or the easier way to go over there would be to go you know, YouTube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio. Okay. So now that I'm powering this up, uh, like I said, I'm going to read for an hour from this book. And I think you guys will find the stories very interesting. I know I do. For some of us, it's bedtime reading. For others, it's keep you up at night. Apologize for the glasses. My contacts finally ripped through and I'm waiting to get a doctor's appointment and uh, to get new contacts. So it's going to be glasses here for a while. And let me get this going here. Hang on. Sometimes it takes a couple minutes to get this thing powered up because it's old like me. But I want to welcome everybody from um, from TikTok who joins us. Okay, so uh, the book is The uh, Spirits of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Holidays by Sylvia Schultz. We have full permission to read, so here we go. The Kennedy Road Phantom. So it's now 734. We will read till 834 tonight. The Kennedy Road Phantom. Chicago and her suburbs are justly famous for the phantom hitchhikers that roam the streets. Hovering somewhere between urban legend and outright ghost story, these apparitions rack up the paranormal equivalent of frequent flyer miles with their many appearances to unsuspecting motorists. And the motorist, and to the motorist, Resurrection Mary, is by no means the only spirit that wanders the highways and byways of the second city. Take the Kennedy Road Phantom, for example. This mysterious female ghost first showed up near the town of Byron, Illinois in December 1980. Her appearance was so shocking that once word got out, traffic was sometimes bumper to bumper along Kennedy Road, with curiosity seekers angling for a glimpse of the young lady. This may well have been because of the slender young woman wore next to nothing, even in the frigid Chicago weather. One witness, Dave Trenholm, came to the Chicago Tribune reporters with his story. He said that he was driving along Kennedy Road at about 9 p.m. on the night of January 2nd, 1981, with Guy Harriet of Oregon. Dave claimed that the young lady stepped out from behind some bushes at the side of the road. She was, Dave said, tall, slender, nice-looking, about 20 years old. All she was wearing were some black panties and some kind of scarf around her neck. This, despite the fact that the thermometer hovered around 10 degrees that night. As the woman spotted the car, she turned and ran toward a nearby farmhouse and then vanished. Sightings like this went on for weeks from December 1980 well into January 1981. Reliable witnesses filled police blotters with reports of the girl's clothing, or lack of it. Different witnesses described different outfits. The girl was seen wearing light-colored shorts and a sweatshirt, or shorts and a light jacket, or even a tiny halter top. One detail remained constant. She was always skimpily dressed. This this argued against the whole thing being a hoax. It would take a seriously dedicated or outright insane prankster to walk along the sides of a roadway in the dead of winter half naked. So who was she? A mentally handicapped girl had been reported missing by her parents around Christmas. And for a while, she became a possible candidate. But that theory was dismissed. Putting aside the possibility of a joke, people naturally turned to the paranormal for an explanation. Perhaps she was a car accident victim who had returned to haunt the stretch of Kennedy Road. Or maybe she was the ghost of a woman who had been buried in a nearby cemetery. 
which had been abandoned and recently destroyed. The story took a gruesome turn in late January 1981. The Rockford Register Star published a report that an Ogle County Sheriff's car had struck a mysterious woman around 8 p.m. and run her over. The woman had suddenly appeared in the middle of the road, and the driver of the squad car had no time to react. The car slammed into the woman, and she was pulled underneath the vehicle. According to the officers filing the report, they heard her bones crunch and felt the impact of the tires rolling over her body. The squad car screeched to a halt, and the officers wrenched their doors open and flung themselves out of the car, horrified at what they'd accidentally done. They sprinted back up the road, aghast at the carnage that surely awaited them. But they never found the woman's body. Puzzled, the officers made their report and braced for the derision that came sure, that was sure to follow. A police lieutenant called the story crazy and untrue. But the officers were simply doing their duty, which that night included filing a report of something inexplicable. By the end of January, the reports of half-dressed phantom of the half-dressed phantom of Kennedy Road had begun to taper off. Soon, the pretty young ghost seemed to fade out of existence, despite people still quite eager to see her. This was decades ago, but many ghost hunters still keep a sharp eye out for her as they drive down that lonely stretch of road, especially the guys. It came upon the midnight clear, ghost stories of Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. It's finally Christmas Eve, the tree stands proud, its colored lights twinkling softly in the dusk of winter evening. The presents are wrapped, tomorrow's dinner is planned, and all is ready for the holiday celebration. What walks on this silent night? Santa stuffs the stockings. The following three stories come from the website paranormalabout.com, where people gather to share their odd experiences. The first story was shared by a reader with the screen name Misty G. Quote, when I was nine years old, I'm 30 now. I could not get to sleep on Christmas Eve because I was excited about presents and wondered if my parents had anything to do with the gifts I'd received from Santa that year before. That night, it was hot because the heater was on. I lived in Texas. So, I got thirsty. Also, I was wanting to spy. I got out of bed and cracked open my door to make sure no one was out in the living room. So that way, I could get something to drink. When I opened the door, I saw someone bent over. Then, he stood up. It was Santa Claus, dressed in the red and white getup. Something strange that I could that I could see the lights. Some, yeah, something strange was that I could see the lights of the Christmas tree shining right through him. He was taking the stockings down off the mantle and placing them on the coffee table. When he started to turn around to put the next stocking on the table, I closed the door and jumped into bed. The next morning, I woke up and told my sister what I'd seen. I told her where he had put the stockings. When we went into the living room, the stockings were where I said he had put them. We both turned and looked at each other and froze for a moment. From then on, I have told everyone that I believe in Santa. Santa and an Elf This story, also from ParanormalAbout.com, comes from, contrib from contributor Skitty Scat. This incident took place near Seattle, Washington on Christmas Eve, 1957 or 1958. Mom was at the kitchen window when she yelled for my sister and me ages around five and seven, to come look. There was Santa and an elf carrying a big brown bag, walking down the middle of the street. My dad went running out the door to see if Santa would come and say Merry Christmas to us kids, but Santa, the elf, and the big brown bag had vanished. The Ghosts in the Living Room 
And one more story from Arthur H. My mother, to whom I was very close, passed away in 1964 when I was 17 years old. I left home that year and moved to Ontario from Nova Scotia. In 1969, I met a girl whom I'll call Karen, and we got married in March of 1970. In December of 71, we were expecting our first child. We were living in a small bungalow. There was a fireplace in the living room. My wife and I loved the fireplace, and we had it lit every night. Quote, it was Christmas Eve, 71, and we had just finished putting the gifts under the tree, and a nice fire gave off a beautiful glow. On the tree, one string of lights, which was supposed to flash, had stopped several days before. It was five minutes to midnight when the fire in the fireplace suddenly went out, and the string of lights started to flash, and the other lights stopped flashing. My wife and I were sitting on the floor, and it had become very chilly in the room. I looked over to my lazy boy chair, and a figure was sitting there, my mother, with a big, beautiful smile on her face. My wife, who had never met my mother, said she could see the same thing. This ghost never spoke, but just kept looking at me and my wife and smiling. At 12 midnight, the fire in the fireplace started up again, and the lights on the tree stopped flashing, and the others started flashing again. I looked over to the chair, and the ghost was gone. No matter what I did to those Christmas lights, they never flashed again. That's not Santa. Murder-suicide. Murder-suicide orphans five children by Bruce Trachtenberg, Oregonian staff writer. A Portland mother of five died of gunshot wounds early Sunday in an apartment murder, in apparent murder-suicide in a North Portland home where she had sought refuge. Her former husband turned the gun on himself after, the first, after first shooting her, according to the Multnomah County Medical Examiner's Office. Dead are Marles, age 36, and Billy, age 42. Mrs. H. and the children had been living in the home of Mary E. Ballinger, where the shooting occurred. She came here in the hopes of finding some protection. Mrs. Ballinger said, We had known each other for about four and one-half years. We used to live next door to each other. The medical examiner's office said Mrs. H. was beaten and killed about 2.50 a.m. Sunday after she let her former husband in the house. Billy, in parentheses, H. also died of, gun, of a gunshot wound. Mrs. Bellinger said she hopes the children can spend Christmas with her family. Quote, I hope the court is good enough to let the kids stay here for Christmas. We want to try to make this the best Christmas that we can for them. We don't want to upset them any more than possible. The police youth division said later Sunday the children would be allowed to spend Christmas at the Bellinger's home. This is from the Portland Oregonian, December 24, 1973. Domestic violence pays no attention to the date on the calendar. If death is going to come from within the family, it doesn't matter what day it is. Marles and Billy couldn't work out their differences peacefully, and they both ended up dead. The violence tore apart the front room of the home. Marles was shot just inside the front door on a couch near a glass-fronted cabinet cabinet. The gunshot shattered the glass into a thousand twinkling shards. Blood from the murder-suicide drenched the room in gore. The couple's five children and the family who took them in were unharmed. But the echo of that terrible violence still thrums through the North Portland, Oregon home. Marles and Billy still haunt the house where their lives ended in a blast of lead and a spray of blood. Twelve years after the tragic event in 1985, a family moved into the house that had sat abandoned for so long. Michael and Carolyn Brown had been looking, not seriously, for a large older home, and the three-story Victorian, just a block away from where they were living, came up for sale. 
it was listed at $58,000. But no one bought it. The price dropped several times, and the Browns became interested, even though the house had sat empty for a year and a half. The couple made an offer of $42,000, and the house was theirs. The Browns couldn't believe their luck. They moved into the house in November of 85, along with their daughters, Jenny and Cassie. Let me see something really quick. Okay. Just checking. Okay. Um, they moved into the house in 85, along with their daughters, Jenny and Cassie. The Browns lived in the house for a year and a half before Carolyn began to have spooky feelings about their new home. It wasn't anything specific, nothing she could put her finger on, just a feeling of something not being right. Six months later, she and Michael were talking about the house, comparing notes, as it were, and Carolyn discovered that Michael also found the house disconcerting in a way he couldn't explain to her or to himself. Both Michael and Carolyn agreed that perhaps the floors in the home were a little too creaky, that perhaps the window in their daughter Jenny's bedroom shouldn't be opening by itself. A couple of years after the Browns moved in, a former owner of the house stopped by to see his old home. As he was leaving, he asked the couple if they knew that their home had been the scene of a murder-suicide. Shocked at the news, Carolyn and Michael did some investigating with the neighbors. Sure enough, the neighbors confirmed the story. A lady had left her husband and had come to the home of her friend, seeking safety for herself and her five children. Her husband had come after her, killed her, then turned the gun on himself. Cassie, the couple's younger daughter, was the first in the family to see the ghosts of Marles and Billy. She told Carolyn that a nice lady would come to tuck her in at night, but that a man would also come into her room. Cassie, not yet three years old, found the man scary, because he never smiled. He only watched. But the lady was kind, and pulled the blankets up and tucked Cassie in, soothing the toddler to sleep. On Christmas Eve... 1989, daughter Jenny snuck downstairs for an early peek at the presents under the tree. A man was standing near the tree gazing at it. His back to the little girl. Jenny caught her breath. Could it be her dad standing there, or even Santa Claus? The man turned to face her and vanished. Jenny, scared out of her wits by the man, who was obviously neither her father nor Santa, scampered back to bed. Much later, she told her parents what she'd seen. The man she described sounded a lot like the man Cassie had, had seen watching her in her bedroom. The Browns were forced to admit that they were sharing the home with ghosts. One of the spirits made his presence known exactly a year later. On Christmas Eve 1990, the Browns hosted the annual family Christmas at their beautiful spacious home. Carolyn's sister-in-law had brought a tray of mixed nuts for the party. The relatives had all gone home, and Michael and the two girls had already gone to bed. Carolyn was in the kitchen, straightening up the last of the party mess. Quote, I was putting some stuff away and noticed that the tray with the nuts was halfway off the table, Carolyn said. I pushed it back onto the table, and then I started putting things away again. And then the tray just flipped backward. It was like someone had taken his hand underneath and flipped it up. The tray hit the wall, and nuts scattered everywhere. Carolyn snapped off the lights and bolted for the safety of her bedroom. The spilled nuts could wait until morning. Poe finds his inspiration. Many connoisseurs of horror fiction consider Edgar Allan Poe to be the father of the genre. And one of his finest short stories is The Cast... Uh, okay, here we go. The Cask... Uh, dang it. The Cast of the Almond Tilda. Tilado. Almond Tilado. The Cast of the Almond Tilado. Why do I always get these? 
This deeply creepy tale is a staple of high school literature classes, and for good reason. I don't remember this. <laughs> okay, and for good reason. It's the story of a man who gets bricked up alive. Oh, I remember this now. It's the story of a man who gets bricked up alive in a dungeon, a fate he thoroughly deserves. What most of these high school English students don't know is that Poe based his story on three events. Poe was born in Boston on January 9, 1809. In 1827, the 18-year-old Poe enlisted in the Army. His first posting was pretty close to home at Fort Independence on Castle Island in Boston Harbor. On Sunday, when he had some free time, Poe wandered outside the fort's walls down to the water's edge. A monument there had caught his attention, and naturally he wanted a closer look. On one side of the obelisk, Poe read the inscription, The Officers of the U.S. Regiment of Lieutenant Artie, Art, Artie erected this monument as a toast testimony to the respect and friendship from an amiable man and gallant officer. On another side of the monument, Poe found a few lines from a poem by William Collins. Quote, Here honor comes a pilgrim gray to check the turf that wraps his clay. End quote. Curiouser and curiouser, Poe must have thought. He continued his circle of the obelisk. On the northern side, which faced Boston, he found yet another piece of the puzzle. Quote, Beneath this stone are deposited the remains of Lieutenant Robert F. Massey of the United Regiment Light of, of Light Artillery. Near this spot on 25th December 1817 fell Lieutenant Robert F. Massey, aged 21 years. End quote. Even in his late teens, Poe had the makings of a war writer, and here was the seed of what promised to be an amazing story. All he needed were the juicy details. He did a little poking around on the sly, and before long, he had some very illuminating conversations with his fellow soldiers. Ten years earlier, in the summer of 1817, a young lieutenant named Robert Massey had been posted to the fort. He was a likable guy and made friends quickly, but there was one officer who just didn't take to Massey. Call it a personality conflict if you want to, but truth was, Captain Green didn't much like anyone at the fort. He was a bully, plain and simple. The other men just tried to avoid him, but it wasn't always easy to do on the small island. On Christmas Eve, Massey, Green, and a few other officers settled in for an evening of cards. Massey and the others enjoyed the friendly games, but Green seemed determined to ruin Christmas for everyone. Around midnight, Massey won the hand of cards they'd been playing. With a grin, he reached for his winnings. Well, Merry Christmas to me. Green, li Green leapt from his chair with a snarl and smacked Massey across the face with an open palm. You cheated. Then he said the words that froze every man's blood. I demand satisfaction. Lieutenant Massey knew he was in serious trouble. A duel of honor could not be ignored even on Christmas Day. Even worse, he knew Captain Green was an expert swordsman. He spent the remaining hours of the night tossing in a cold sweat of dreadful anticipation. The next morning, at the break of dawn, Massey and Green met outside the walls of the fort along with their seconds. In the stinging cold air, their seconds followed tradition, pleaded with the two men to set aside their impending duel. But Green refused, and Massey had no choice but to go through with it. The duel began with a clash of steel. Massey did his best to defend himself, but Green pressed the attack. On that cold, clear Christmas morning, he wanted to kill. Massey gasped as Green's cold blade pierced his chest. The duel was over within moments. The young lieutenant's man lifted him gently from the sand and carried him to the infirmary. 
Robert Massey died later that afternoon. Massey had been respected and well-liked by his men. He'd made friends in the months he'd been at the fort. His men moved through their days in a haze of depression and grief. There was no reason Massey had to die. A young man cut down his prime strength just to satisfy some bullies less for killing. Then, some of Massey's friends learned some information they found very interesting indeed. They already resented Captain Green for the capricious death of their friend Massey. They were intrigued to learn that Green had goaded officers at other forts into duels on equally flimsy pretexts. In short, Green was responsible for the deaths of six other men. He was Massey's friend, he was Massey's friends realized a sociopathic killer who chose to who chose to murder victims in plain sight. Robert Massey's friends had a monument erected to mark the spot where he'd been run through. And nearly the same time, a strange thing happened. Captain Green disappeared. The top brass at the fort could, know, could give no explanation. So after some time, he was considered a deserter. Green was never seen or heard from again. But the story, Poe discovered, didn't end there. One night, still mourning the senseless death of their friend, a handful of Massey's fellow officers paid Captain Green a visit. They brought several bottles with them. Never one to turn down a free drink. Green lifted a few glasses, and still the other officers kept topping off his mug. Soon, Green was knee, was knee walking drunk. Two burly officers propped him up, one under each arm, and they went for a walk. The whole group manhandled Green out of his room and down to one of the old dungeons of the fort. Earlier that day, the officers had gone searching for the most remote of the abandoned cells. The dungeons had fallen out of regular use, but the cells were still equipped with the iron shackles of days gone by. The men hustled Green down the dark, filthy cell and dragged him through the narrow door. They dumped him onto the dusty floor and clapped the rusty iron manacles to his wrists and ankles. Green came to a groggy half-consciousness and slurred a question. What the hell was going on? Then realization cut through the fog of alcohol. The officers ignored him, and he began to yell and struggle against his chains. Silently, they mixed mortar and began to take bricks from the pile stacked next to the door. It didn't take long for the men, working together, to brick up the narrow cell door. It took longer, probably much longer, for Green to die screaming in the pitch blackness. The officers involved all requested transfers to other forts. But before they all left, whispers began among the lower ranks. The story was shared in low, muttered tones. Ten years later, there were still soldiers at Fort Independence who remembered the true story of the fate of Captain Green. They shared that hushed tale with budding horror writer Edgar Allan Poe. The higher-ups got wind of Poe's research, and he was called into the office of the fort's commander. Poe was told that he was strictly forbidden to tell anyone the story of Massey's duel and its grisly consequences. Poe agreed to the gag order. Of course, no writer could sit on a juicy story like that forever. Many years later, Poe composed a story set in Europe, here we go with the name, titled The Cask, <laughs> the Cask of the Amontillado. To, yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to spell it out, guys. A-M-O-N-T-I-L-L-A-D-O. Let's just leave it at that. He was forbidden to tell the story, but no one has said he couldn't write a story that had its roots in the sand of Castle Island. Roots that reached down into the dungeons far below the ground. But there is yet more to this story. In 1905, a work crew on the island discovered the oldest section of the fort. On comparing the prison cells to the fort's original plans, the crew realized that they didn't match. 
A bricked-up section of a wall captured their attention. Maybe the missing cells were behind the wall. The foreman called for more light and a couple of pickaxes, and the men set to work solving the mystery. After a couple, after a couple of hours' work, there was a hole in the wall, large enough for a small man to fit through. The man came back out of the cell much more quickly than he'd gone in. There's a skeleton in there, he gasped. The men pulled down the rest of the wall, revealing a skeleton dressed in tattered remains of an 1812-year army uniform. Rusted shackles still encircled the bones of the wrists and ankles. The skeleton's jaw hung open in a soundless scream. The remains were never identified. They were simply given a military funeral and buried in the cemetery on Castle Island. A gravestone reads, Unknown. Funny that the unknown soldier rested on the same island where Lieutenant Massey's monument stands tall and proud. Or at least it did for a while. A bridge was built in 1891 that connected Castle Island to Boston, and thousands of weekend visitors came to see Massey's monument. In 1892, a new cemetery was opened on, government, on Governor's Island, and the monument and Massey's remains were moved there. In 1908, the body and monument were moved again to Rest Haven Cemetery on Deer Island. Massey was allowed to rest in Rest Haven until 1939, when he and his monument were uprooted once again and moved halfway across the state to Iron, Massachusetts. Robert Massey was finally buried at Fort Devens. May he rest in peace until the next time someone moves him. Christmas Carols in the Woods The old man had retired from the Baltimore and Ohio rail line. The engineer had been known for his love of the Christmas season. Every December, he'd buy sacks of candy to toss to children who lived in the houses along the tracks, like a rolling Santa Claus. And he would bellow Christmas carols as he worked, filling the railroad cars with cheerful songs. His retirement package had allowed him to buy a phonograph and start a collection of records. Most of them, predictably, were Christmas music. The old man got a few visitors during the Christmas season, even with his house tucked away in the woods. Anytime a friend or family member stopped by, the old man would cheerfully invite them in to sip coffee and enjoy his small collection of records. When the old man passed away, his relatives came to clean out his tiny house. They took his records and his cherished phonograph, and the house was left empty. In 1968, the old B&O tracks that ran past the house were taken up and not replaced. The old man's house fell to the wrecking ball as well. No sense in leaving it if no one lived there, and the tracks were gone. All that was left was the old track bed. Hunters found it a useful trail in the deep woods. Years after the old man died, not long after his house was demolished, a hunter was in that part of the woods. It was two days before Christmas. The hunter was driving carefully down the track bed, mindful of the noises of the forest around him, when he heard a sound that had no place in that part of the woods anymore. It was the sound of a Christmas carol coming from a well-worn and well-loved record, Pops, scratches, hisses, and all as the needle coaxed the tune from the aging vinyl. The hunter stopped his car and turned off the engine to make sure his imagination wasn't playing tricks on him. All around him, the music rose, threading through the trees. The hunter shook his head at the weirdness of it, <coughs> sorry, and turned the key in the ignition. His car wouldn't start. Frantically, he stomped on the gas and twisted the key again. The motor just wouldn't turn over. Then the hunter saw moving ahead of him. An old man was crossing the track bed. The man walked slowly up to the front porch of a house that had sh shimmered into view next to the phantom train tracks. The hunter watched the man open the front door of the tiny house as the music got fainter and fainter. The house, the old man, and the last strains of music all faded away together. 
this time. The engine caught, and the hunter wrenched the steering wheel around and slewed through the woods to get out. On his return to town, he stammered out his tale. He was astounded to find that some of his audience, the older folks, actually believed him. They remembered the old engineer who lived in the house in the woods and loved the Christmas season so much and who invited visitors in to listen to his favorite records. The next night, Christmas Eve, 13 boys set out for the woods in three cars. They wanted their own experience in the dark of the forest. They drove on the track bed, on the track bed out to where the old engineer's house had once stood. They parked, shut off their cars, and waited. The boys' experience was just a little different than what the hunter had imported. They didn't see the phantom house, and they didn't see the old man crossing the tracks to get to the house. But they heard the music, rising among the trees, sounding just like an old Victrola cranked up to a wheezy full volume. And their cars would not start until the music faded away. The boys went back out for a few nights after Christmas, but nothing happened on those visits. Legend has it that the music can only be heard in the days leading up to Christmas. After Christmas Day, the old phonograph falls quiet and silence returns to the woods along the tracks until the next Christmas season comes around. St. Mary's Church The town of Crompton, Rhode Island, now part of West Warwick, began in 1807 when a cotton mill was built on the Pawtucket River. Pawtucket River? Okay. The town thrived with the success of the mill. In the 1840s, the potato famine struck Ireland, and Irish immigrants skilled in textile trades immigrated to America. Many of them were drawn to the employment offered by the mill of Crompton. Unfortunately, the area had originally been settled by English Protestants. The Irish Catholics who moved to the area a generation later found a formally entrenched intolerance. Found a, found a firmly entrenched intolerance. The closest Catholic church was in Providence, which was a good 10 miles from the Crompton. Few of the mill workers could afford wagons, and a 10-mile walk every Sunday soon became onerous. The Irish were desperate to build a Catholic church of their own in town, but the Protestants refused to sell them the land on which to build. The Irish Catholics finally found friends in Paul and Mary Doran. The, Doran, the Dorans bought a one-acre lot, then turned around and deeded it to the Roman Catholic Bishop of Hartford. In 1844, the ground was broken for the construction of a church. Mary Doran died young. In fact, she died soon after the work was begun on the church. There were whispered rumors that her death was the result of a retaliatory curse flung by the enraged Protestants. But whether Mary Doran's death had a supernatural aspect or not, it seems pretty clear that she is still very much a part of the church she helped to found. The small church holds an air of eerie mystery. Many members of the congregation, especially children, feel uneasy within its walls. Even today, some parishioners refuse to go into the church alone at night. Friar Edmund H. Fitzgerald, who was pastor at St. Mary's from 1984-92, readily admits that he believes the church is haunted by the spirit of Mary Doran. He has been alone in the church countless times, and many times he would hear footsteps on the hard cedar floor. The footsteps would come up right behind him, but when he turned around, there was no one to be seen. Sometimes the church organ's majestic tones would ring out, even when the instrument was closed, locked, and covered with its cloth. As unnerving as all these episodes may have been, though, Friar Fitzgerald says he never felt uncomfortable in the church or frightened of the invisible presence. Friar Fitzgerald experienced a very special aspect of the haunting one Christmas Eve in 1989 or 90. He had offered the Mass of the Christ Child that afternoon. 
By 5 p.m., the last of his parishioners had left, and Friar Fitzgerald was locking the church to leave himself. To leave himself. Suddenly, the tower bell began to ring on its own, pealing out over the church grounds. Friar Fitzgerald immediately went back into the church to investigate. The bell rope was moving up and down, all by itself, he said. But there was nothing in the church. That bell could only ring from someone pulling the rope. Even recent hurricanes did not cause the bell to ring in this way. But Father Fitzgerald wasn't alarmed by the spectral bell ringer. Quote, what better time for it to ring, he said, than to celebrate the birth of the Christ child. The Lady in the Pantry. On Christmas Eve in 1885, a canon living, living in Conn's Half, Ireland, was relaxing at home in the rectory when his cook came into the room. Nervously, she pointed out that there was a strange noise going on in the kitchen. It sounded to her like the noise of a heavy wagon rolling past a rickety house. The canon had no idea what to make of this, but his cook was obviously alarmed. So he called another servant, and the three of them, canon, cook, and manservant, went down to the kitchen which was in the basement. By the time they got to the kitchen, the house was vibrating as if in the grip of an earthquake, but none of the furniture or dishes were being jostled. They were all perfectly still. The two servants were on either side of the cannon, each holding onto an arm, terrified at the eerie disturbance. Suddenly, the vibration stopped, but beyond the closed pantry door, the three of them could hear a tremendous racket. It sounded like someone was throwing every china plate, bowl, and glass under the flagstone floor. Crash after crash came from behind the locked door, while the servants clung to the cannon for dear life. The door was locked, but the key was in the lock, and the cannon decided to open the door and investigate. He reached for the door, but before he put his hand on the key, the locked door of the pantry swung open. A tall woman glided out of the pantry. She was wearing a loose white dress with a short black cape around her shoulders. The cannon was paralyzed with fright, and his two servants were holding onto his arm so tightly in their own fear that days later the cannon had bruises from the panicky grip of their fingers. The cannon wrenched away from the servants to follow the ghost, who had moved across the kitchen to the stairs. When the ghost reached the bottom of the stairs, it vanished, and the cannon's two small boys in their bedroom three stories above started screaming. The three thundered up the stairs of the boys' bedroom. The boys were shaking, terrified at the ghostly intrusion. The older boy, who was ten, told his father that he had been lying awake in his bed waiting for Santa Claus. But instead of the jolly old elf, a strange lady glided into the room and then went back out, and she hadn't left any toys. The canon and his servants searched the rectory from top to bottom, but they found no trace of the lady in white. And when the cook opened the pantry door, which was still locked, she found no broken china and nothing was disturbed. Mrs. Eustace returned. The dead must leave us for a while, it's true, and sometimes our grief of losing them can feel overwhelming. But if we are lucky, our loved ones will find a way to let us know they still care for us, even beyond death. Dr. Eustace's wife died early on Christmas Day in 1932. The widower was devastated by his loss, and he, but he believed that his wife's spirit lived on, and that they would someday be reunited. But as the bleak days and weeks without her wore on, Dr. Eustace drew his grief around him and resigned himself to her loss. About seven weeks after his wife's death, Dr. Eustace was taking an evening stroll in his garden. Suddenly, he stopped in his tracks. There, in the fading light of the setting sun, stood his beloved wife. Dr. Eustace later wrote about the experience. 
she stood looking straight at me as though she had been expecting me. Her face and figure were as distant, were as distinct and clear-cut as in life. She gazed intently at me. Translated into words, her expression would have been well rendered by, How stupid of you, why so foolish? I believe that I smiled and that my face reflected my joy. But the surprises were not yet over for Dr. Eustace. His wife's friend, Mrs. Welch, came by to offer her condolences. During their conversation, Mrs. Welch claimed to have seen Mrs. Eustace on Christmas Eve the night before her friend had died. Mrs. Welch had attended... Okay, the night before her friend had died, I'm sorry. The night before her friend had died, Mrs. Welch had attended midnight service at the Covenant of Poor Clares. She had gone to the church at five minutes before midnight, and she said Mrs. Eustace had been at the church too. Mrs. Eustace had greeted her friend and taken her by the arm, helping her to her seat with a smile. When Mrs. Welch had learned the next day of her friend's passing, she realized that of course it hadn't really been Mrs. Eustace at the church, but that her friend's spirit had been the one to help her to her seat. As Mrs. Welch spoke of her experience, Dr. Eustace recalled something else about that Christmas Eve. As he stood by his wife's bedside, he had noted that she lost consciousness at 11.55 p.m., the exact time her spirit was guiding Mrs. Welch to her seat at the church. The Phantoms of the Mamie are Mine The winter of 1894 was a very bad time to work at the Mamie R. Mine on Raven Hill at Cripple Creek, Colorado. Three men had already died at the mine over that year. In the darkness, any misstep had the potential to kill. One miner had been killed in an unexplained blast. Another miner had the bad luck to be standing under the bucket used to transport workers to the surface when the new cable broke. The falling bucket smashed the miner into an unrecognizable mass. Over that, let's see, I'm over here, okay. Outside the mine, things were no less dire. A man named Garson, who ran the mine's boarding house, came down with mountain fever. Nine days later, he was dead. On November 15, 1894, E.D. Blake was appointed manager of the boarding house. On Thanksgiving night, Blake was working at the top of the mine along with a foreman named Fatty Root and two other men. They were all working near the hoist bucket. Suddenly, the signal bell rang three times, then once. This was the signal for man aboard hoist away. The hoist man started the bucket on its upward climb, but before it got all the way to the top, the bell rang once, the signal for stop. Then it rang twice for lower away. Then the bell started ringing randomly, throwing out a bizarre contradictory mix of signals. This was all kinds of wrong. The bucket and windlass were the miner's lifeline to the surface. It was far too serious of a piece of equipment to waste the operator's time with silly games and mixed signals. Blake and Root <coughs> excuse me, decided to put a stop to the shenanigans. Ignoring the bell signals, they hauled the bucket up and climbed in. They bumped and clanged their way to the bottom of the shaft. Grabbing lanterns, they both went all the way through the workings. There was no one down at the bottom. When the two men came back up, the hoist operator said that no one had come up before them either. A few nights later, a miner was working at the 375-foot level. He came up to the top, ashen-faced. A man, he said, had just been killed. The miner said he had been placing charges for blasting. As he worked, someone had walked right past him, straight into the middle of the blast zone. He had yelled at the man to get out, but whoever it was had ignored him. Then the charges detonated. As soon as the smoke from the blast had cleared, the foreman sent workers down to investigate. When they got down to 375 feet, they were met by a horrifying sight. A man stood in the lantern light. 
blood streaming from several ugly gashes on his head. One of his arms had been blown off. He stood with it slung smartly over his other shoulder, like a rifle. The men were appalled at the sight of the mutilated miner, but they were astounded he was still alive. They yelled at the man, but he ignored them. Perhaps, and quite rightly, he was in shock. One of the rescue parties stepped forward to take the miner's good arm, and his hand went right through the injured miner. The shift boss grabbed a drill and poked at the man, and the drill swished through the specter as though the man was made of smoke, not flesh and blood. The ghost brushed past the men, headed for the bucket, and rode up to the top. The rescue party waited until their racing hearts had calmed down, then they too rode the bucket up to the surface. The hoist operator at the surface swore he hadn't pulled the bucket up but once, for them. The hauntings continued. On Christmas Eve, Blake, Root, and two other workers were once again at the top level of the mine near the bucket. The bell sounded three times, then once. Who's down there? Root the foreman asked. There isn't anyone down there, the hoist operator said. But he couldn't just ignore the signal. Better safe than sorry, after all. He started up the hoist. What happened next, according to E.D. Blake, was recorded in a WPA Writer's Program report dated 1936-42. to All three of us started back, and the blood curled in our veins. I hope to be spared ever seeing such a sight again. Quote, Garson got out of the bucket first. Garson with his yellow, pinched face and staring eyes, just as he looked the night I saw him die of a mountain fever. Then came the one-armed man, with the blood spattered over his features and the shattered stump of an arm. Between them, they lifted out the body of a poor fellow lashed to a plank as it laid it, and laid it on the platform. Then the one-armed man reached down the bucket and brought out his arm. As he rose from the stooping posture, he looked toward us, the most ghastly object I've ever beheld, his face all cuts, his clothing torn to shreds. He laid the arm on top of the body that was lashed to the plank, and the two raised the whole horrible thing to their shoulders and walked out into the night. For a minute, no one spoke. And then we all rushed to the door, and as true as I live, we saw the two men, ghosts or whatever they were, walk over the edge of the dump and disappear in the darkness. But the Mamiar wasn't finished claiming its victims. That night, the mine flooded. The next day, Christmas Day, the miners had to work on, it, on emptying it, one hoist bucket at a time. Around midnight, Fatty Root relieved the bucket dumper and was working in the hoist. It was working the hoist. The men on that shift had brought up a dozen buckets of water, and the thirteenth was nearly at the top when the winding spool slipped out of its frame and the cable whipped out in great deadly loops. One of the cable loops caught Root around the neck and lopped his head right off, quick as thought and as cleanly as a guillotine. Many of the mines in the American West were worked by Welsh, Irish, and Cornish immigrants, men descended from miners themselves, men who brought with them generations' worth of expertise in working underground. These immigrants also brought with them a rich tradition of folklore tailored to their specific calling of working deep in the earth. The Tommyknockers were a fairy race who lived underground. Sometimes these pixies were helpful locating miners' lost tools, leading them to safety out of the tangle of mine shafts and warning them of impending cave-ins. But sometimes the Tommyknockers could be malicious, maliciously manipulative. They would steal tools and lunches. They would tap a miner on the shoulder and laugh at his confusion. And sometimes their tricks were deadly. The Tommyknockers would toy with senses gone dull in the unrelenting darkness. They would pretend to be a lost child crying for help, luring miners deep into an unshored shack, leading them into a very real danger to cave in. 
The miners claimed they could tell when the Tommy knockers were around. They spoke of a feeling of being watched, but if a miner whipped around to catch the culprit, all he would see was a skittering shadow, a shadow that would disappear right into a rocky wall. The miners also spoke of hearing voices, unintelligible whisperings, that would melt away with, ma with, with, with maddeningly, it went maddeningly into the dark. When they did catch glimpses of their tormentors, it was a horrifying sight. The evil imps were said to be two to three feet high, thin and wiry, with eyes that glowed a sullen red in the black shadows of the mine shafts. The Mamiar mine closed shortly after the Christmas Day tragedy of 1894. There is no record of that particular mine, as the mining records of the State Bureau of Mines for Colorado only began in 1895. But perhaps in an abandoned mine somewhere in the rocky wilderness in Cripple Creek, Tommyknockers still chatter in the darkness, and dead miners still travel up and down the derelict hoist, still toiling in the mines decades after the accidents that stole their lives. The Wreck of the General Arnold The year was 1778. The young country of America had declared its independence from Britain just two years before. King George III wasn't about to let his colonies go without a fight. The American militia needed all the help it could get. In December, the brigantine General Arnold set sail from Boston. She carried 20 guns with a crew of 106 to man them. The brig was a privateer, meaning that she was privately owned and outfitted as a warship by her owner. Ships like this were issued letters of marquee, of, of mar, of marquee by province of Massachusetts, allowing them to legally chase down British ships and plunder them. With these letters of Marquis, I think it's Marquis, the ships and their crew rode the fine line between legitimate raiding in a time of war and outright piracy. By Christmas Day, the ship had gotten as far as Gurnet Point outside of Plymouth Bay. The captain, James McGee, anchored there and signaled for a pilot to take the ship safely into the harbor. But a storm was brewing up fast, and no sane pilot would risk his life in such a nasty weather. Without a local mariner to guide the brigantine into the harbor, Captain McGee would have to take his chances navigating the unfamiliar shores on his own, shoals on his own. McGee decided to ride out the storm in Cape Cod Bay for the night and hope a pilot made, it, made his way out to the brig the next morning. That turned out to be a very bad idea. The storm grew worse during the night. The General Arnold, already dragging anchor, went aground on White Flats in Plymouth Bay. The ship was still a mile off of Plymouth shore and being forced further into the sand. Then the tide went out, leaving the ship stranded and listing in very shallow water. As the storm that had been menacing the ship turned into a daily nor'easter for three days, wind and snow plummeted or pummeled the General Arnold. With temperatures plummeting, the snow froze to the sails and lines of the ship. Captain McGee ordered the men to chop the mast down to lighten the ship in hopes of floating her off the sandbar. His plan didn't work. Also, the men, once they had axes in hand, used them to break into the ship's cast of rum. The men went below decks to wait out the fury of the storm. But under the force of the pounding waves, the seams split and frigid water poured into the ship. The men were forced back up onto the deck into the wind and snow. Then the tide came back in. Waves washed over the deck, adding to the misery of the already freezing crew. There was one small boat on board. Three of the men decided to take the yawl and row to shore for help. They risked being battered to pieces by the pounding waves, but they decided it was worth a try. 
parentheses, it's unclosed. Well, it's unclear whether they came up with this plan on their own or if they had McGee's permission to make a run for it. End quote, in parentheses. The men piled into the yawl, yawl and were able to row to a frozen port of the bay, where they walked across the ice to a schooner that had gotten trapped. The three men who made their escape never did come back. Around sunset on Saturday, on Saturday December 26th, the tide went out again. The brig was no longer battered by the pounding waves, but during the night, the wind shifted to the northeast, bringing bitterly cold temperatures. Soon enough, the tide came back in with accompanying waves. Unable to seek shelter below decks, the men were exposed to the cold on deck. Sailors, clinging to the ropes of the, of the rigging to avoid <clears throat> being washed overboard, froze to death where they were. By the next morning, 30 of the men were dead. The survivors stacked the frozen bodies to provide a windbreak as the storm's fury lashed the decks. As the snow continued to fall thick and fast and waves battered the decks, the stacked corpses froze into a solid wall of flesh and wet clothing. By Sunday, December 27th, the townspeople of Plymouth realized the brig was stranded on White Flats. They tried time and time again to row out the foundered ship, but the storm was still too strong, and Plymouth Bay was a churning mass of ice flows. The crew was forced to wait another agonizing night. The morning of December 28th brought hope. The people of Plymouth, desperate to provide some help to the suffering crew of the ship, had worked through the night piling ice flows together to form an enormous bridge out to the sandbar. After three days of bitter cold and howling winds, the storm broke. The people of Plymouth cautiously ventured out into the White Flat. The storm had brought such vicious cold that the salt water in the harbor was frozen. The townspeople bundled against the cold, walked over the bridge of ice to see if anyone was still alive aboard the ship. Seventy men were dead. The townspeople dragged sleds over the ice bridge to rescue survivors. 33 survivors were led, shivering to warmth and safety on shore. Of those men, nine died later. Then the gruesome task of recovering the frozen bodies began. Quote, Here was presented a scene unutterably awful and distressing, wrote a witness. It is scarcely possible for the human mind to conceive of a more appalling spectacle. The ship was sunk ten feet in the sand. The waves had been for about 36 hours sweeping the main deck. Seventy dead bodies, frozen in unimaginable postures, were strewed over the deck. The townspeople of Plymouth decided to lay the bodies in the courthouse, as it was one of the largest buildings in town, with plenty of floor space. There was, however, one horrifying flaw in this plan. The bodies of the sailors that had been stacked to provide a grisly windbreak in the General Arnold's deck were now frozen into a solid chunk far too big to fit through the courthouse door. No one wanted to hack the frozen meat apart, so the mass of bodies was put in the town, in the town brook to thaw. The town's water supply was a freshwater spring that bu bubbled up in a constant stream, so it was slow to freeze. The freshwater helped to thaw the bodies enough that they could be pried apart. The bodies were arranged in rows on the courthouse floor. While thawing the bodies, the rescuers noticed something odd about the corpse of Barnabas Downs, the 12-year-old cabin boy. A fresh tear seemed to leak from his open eye. Suddenly the boy blinked. He was still alive, although paralyzed with hypothermia. Downs was saved, although he lost both his feet to frostbite. He lived into his 50s and wrote a memoir of his experiences. In the book, he wrote that as bad as losing his feet was, the pain of getting thawed was out was many, many times worse. In the end, 
Several of the bodies were claimed by relatives, but many of the sailors had simply signed on to the ship in Boston, and Captain McGee hadn't yet had time to add them to the ship's log. They remained unknown, and no one came to claim their bodies. After a couple of weeks, the townspeople realized that even in the cold weather, the corpses had to be buried, and soon. Around 60 unclaimed bodies were buried in, the ten, in a 10 by 20 foot pit on Burial Hill. The pit, probably a rubbish dump that had been dug before the ground froze, was pressed into service as a mass grave. Captain James McGee lived on and had a successful career as a merchant captain. He died in 1801, and at his request, his body was buried in the mass grave that held the bodies of so many of his comrades. This tragedy left the state on the courthouse in Plymouth both figuratively and literally. It's said that the floorboards were so saturated with blood and body fluids that they have, had to be taken up and turned over. And the psychic residue has led to active hauntings that continue even today. Janice Williams, leader of Dead of Night Lantern Tours in Plymouth, tells the story of the wreck of the General Arnold with ghoulish relish. Parentheses. Of course, that's the way she tells all the stories on her tour. End of parentheses. She describes the sound you might hear if you stand in the ladies' restroom, which is located in the basement of the courthouse. It's a shuffling, sliding sound, the sound of freshly thawed bodies being dr drug across the courthouse floor and arranged in row after row. She will show you the picture on her phone that shows three young cabin boys peering out from one of the courthouse windows, and another picture of one of the dead sailors. These pictures are also posted on the Dead of Night Tours website. And Janice will warn you, with glee, that if you are a woman visiting the Courthouse Museum, you might feel a friendly arm slide around your waist in an affectionate hug. But it's not anyone you know. When you turn around to smile at your companion, there's no one there. Just the spirit of a lonely sailor looking for warmth and maybe a smile from a pretty girl. All right. End of Sunday read. We got, according to this, we got an hour, eight minutes left, so that means next Sunday... We're probably going to put the wraps on this book. It's been fun to read, you know, lots of these stories. Hope nobody got offended or got grossed out or anything. Uh, again, we're broadcasting tonight on Facebook, the uh, TikTok, and YouTube. So we're going out in three different places, and this is kind of it's kind of fun. So uh, I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. I really appreciate it. I know it's Sunday night, getting out of the holiday. And I don't know how to shut off my uh, TikTok live yet, so you guys are going to go last, I think. But I want to thank you all for coming, everybody that, you know, came in from Facebook and uh, YouTube. And again, if you like what you heard, please be sure to hit that like button. And um, if you haven't already, you know, hit that like button. Follow. I really appreciate it. And over on YouTube, if you uh, like what you heard tonight, remember to hit that hit that little uh, ghost that's in the bottom right-hand corner and subscribe. We've got 470 uh, different shows over there, not just all reading books. I'm a journalist. I like to vary what I do, so... There's all kinds of topics, so I'm sure you'll find something that, you're, that, that, that interests you. And uh, subscribe, because then you can get notified every time we have a new video ready to go and ready, you know, ready to rock. Uh, over on the TikTok side, if you did like what you heard, send me some likes. That would be great. And uh, come back, because next Sunday we're going to be doing the same thing for an hour. I'm going to be finishing off this book. And then, like I said earlier, we're going to be moving on to another book. Tomorrow we're going to be going live on uh, Facebook and YouTube. And uh, that's going to be... Uh, with an author that has written a uh, kind of uh, uh, a book about uh, past lives. So we're going to be talking to her about her experiences with that. because She's had some personal experiences with that. So that'll be tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. 
And for those of you over on TikTok who want to join into that, until we can get TikTok going like full time here for these shows, it's going to be Sundays is going to be the read. And then the rest is going to be over on the regular uh, laptop. Okay. So that will be over at uh, you. That'll be over at youtube.com forward slash at California haunts radio. So you can pick us up over there tomorrow at 6 30 PM. Anyway, thank you everybody. And I will see you tomorrow at 6 30. I'm going to sign off of Facebook and stuff. And here we go. Let me sign this bad boy out.